Dr. Derek Fang is back again. Thank you for having me back. Uh, it seems like you just kind of get rid of me. Well, fortunately for me, because uh, you always need someone to co-host with you. So thanks for being the repeat guest to give me something to talk about with someone week after week. Pleasure, it's mine. One of the topics we alluded to in episode 42 was the idea of data privacy. In fact, you brought it up. And so figured that that would be a nice segue. And you can imagine in an age where we are hemorrhaging data on a daily basis as we interact with all these apps and social networks, data privacy has become rather important. This is a hot area of research and statistics that investigates how we can build methods that are safe enough such that our data can be used by platforms and apps to improve their features and to additionally ensure that they're going to be used in a responsible way. There are two main groups of entities that want our data really bad. There's what people are probably most familiar with when we talk about the topic of privacy, which is state actors like governments, right? So they want your data to surveil you for the purposes of, you know, either fighting terrorism or keeping the peace, so to speak. And on the other hand, you have the other group, which are the technology companies that the listeners of this podcast are more than familiar with. And there, they want your data for a different reason, right? Because their algorithms basically survive on data and data is what allows them to improve their products. Now, of course, there are cases when these two groups will collide. For instance, when state actors demand from technology companies that they hand over their data about certain wanted individuals. But we're not a political podcast, so we're not going to go down that route. What we're interested in today is the ways in which technology companies are trying to balance making awesome products and maintaining data privacy. Cool. Let's get started. So let's start with a simple question. Who needs to worry about data privacy? Unfortunately, everyone does. Uh, well, everyone who uses the internet, which is everyone nowadays, <laughs> right? Because you know, when you're using the internet, you're basically sending out data points all of the time. Even if you think you're not sending out information over the web, and you might think that the information you do send out doesn't actually identify you, turns out if you send enough information over a long period of time, the technology companies can reverse engineer this information and identify you. So for instance, with the Netflix competition in 2007, they released a de-identified data set of movie ratings by users. And it turns out that uh, if you do a little bit of fancy reconstruction, you can actually recover 99% of the removed personal information in that data set. Okay, but I don't use Netflix and I don't know if what they can learn about me from my movie preferences anyway. So let's just go for a really concrete example here. Suppose I am on Reddit, which I am, and using it daily, Reddit sees what I'm interested in based on my subreddit subscriptions and my search history. Um, is it all that bad? So that depends entirely on the way you use Reddit. And clearly the way you use Reddit is the way a good person uses Reddit. But as we know from Reddit in the news, there are a lot of weird communities that uh, would probably not want to, you know, divulge who are members of this community. And this actually gets to a common argument against privacy, which is the nothing to hide argument. And this essentially says that only people who are doing the bad things really care about privacy, right? If you're doing nothing wrong, then why should you worry about privacy? Okay, but let's say we have nothing horrible to hide. Let's talk about some ways in which Reddit still might use my data in a way that's undesirable. Well, 
One instance is that Reddit can now serve you really targeted ads. And some people might find this manipulative, although... I can have Adblock installed, which you so judiciously taught me how to do back in the day. To be clear, ads are not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, they are the reason why we have all these amazing websites that are basically free, because that's how these websites are actually being supported. Servers cost a lot of money and they don't pay themselves. So you need to use advertising to pay for these servers. This is the business model that powers much of the web. Your data gets used for the most part to make the service better. First in funding maintenance and feature development. And second, a lot of times services are better because they are more custom fit to your needs. That is only possible by using your data. But there are also opportunities for abuse, right? For instance, we all heard about the Cambridge Analytica story where people's political views were getting manipulated based on their personal vulnerabilities gleaned essentially from the data that they shared with Facebook. So you had mentioned something called differential privacy on a previous episode. Talk to us about what that's about. When I mentioned differential privacy, I brought it up in the context where it was essentially an example of a definition that formalized a whole field, namely data privacy. And so today we're going to be talking about data privacy. In this particular case, there used to be several definitions of privacy that researchers had devised, one of them being K-anonymity, though the issue was that they were all rather unwieldy definitions. So just to give a picture of what K-anonymity is and why that might already be unwieldy, in a very hand-wavy way, a data set is K-anonymous if for every person in the data set, there's enough blurring of the data such that any identifying information that could be traced back to the person also traces back to K minus one other people. And by blurring, I just mean binning or replacing your identifying information with missing values. So you can imagine the higher the K, the larger the degree of anonymity, but also the higher the K, the more loss of precision in the data due to this blurring process. And quickly people found that there were a lot of issues with these type of definition. People came up with other definitions that also had issues. But finally, one day, some people basically devised this definition called Epsilon Differential Privacy, and the world essentially changed. At least the privacy world essentially changed. The actual definition is rather technical, but in a nutshell, the idea is that if you want to protect the privacy of an individual in your data set, you want to do it in such a way that it would be indistinguishable to an adversary if that individual was in your data set or not. And the framework you should have in your mind is, suppose you have this black box inside of which lies your data set. And you're allowed to ask questions or queries to this black box. And this black box will give you answers, but these answers are going to be perturbed in some way, usually by adding noise to it, in such a way that even if you get to see these answers that it spits out, you can't distinguish whether or not a particular individual was in this data set in this black box. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. So the key insight of differential privacy is that as the query is made on the data of fewer and fewer people, more noise needs to be added to the query results to produce the same level of privacy. So the idea essentially is that suppose you have a query that gives you information on aggregate about 100 people. Then what that means is that for each particular individual, because I'm already part of this 100 group, and I give you an average over this 100 group, I'm already masked by the other people in this group. Whereas if I give you a query where there are only two people in this query, I need to mask my information much more because 
I'm only masked by the other individuals in the answer to this particular query. So the key here is about aggregation. When you ask for information on a group of people, the smaller the group, the more noise needs to be added. So now in a world where we move beyond websites, where we're constantly on our phones and this app or the other, it's not too surprising that big companies like Apple and Google have taken data privacy on as an important and potential differentiating feature from their competitors. So for example, Apple wants you to know that it uses differential privacy. On its website, there's a quote that says, we also use techniques like differential privacy to improve user experiences while protecting the information you share with Apple. Differential privacy adds random information to your data before it's analyzed by Apple, so we can't link that data to your device. So differential privacy, this is something that was a little confusing. It's like simultaneously a field in which there's all of these rigorous ways to measure the degree of privacy and anonymity. And it's also what we call methods that are helpful in this regard. Yeah, I think a lot of people just use these terms sort of haphazardly. But generally speaking, differential privacy, you should be thinking of this as just the methodology about adding noise to protect the privacy of individuals in a data set. So on the other hand, Google took a different approach. They prominently advertise something called federated learning. And if you use a Pixel phone, you likely already have been using stuff that has federated learning working under the hood. But let's talk about the Google Gboard in particular. And it's one of my favorite features. It allows me to swipe across a QWERTY keyboard to type. Now, I'm not actually sure that this feature uses the federated learning um, method that we'll talk about, but it's a good one to maybe just illustrate how it could potentially work. So first of all, why I love this magical keyboard, it's not the first keyboard that has a swipe capability, but um, you know, typing on your phone has just always been so awkward for me small fingers, small hands, and so on. So if you want to just type hello to someone, having to tap it letter by letter can be really, really tiring. Instead, with this Gboard, I can just glide my finger over those letters in quick succession without lifting. So I'm on the iPhone. Uh, well, you also used to be on the iPhone. And I think Gboard is also on the iPhone. I'm not sure if they give us Apple users a handicap version. I wouldn't be surprised if they did. Because my experience with Gboard is that I just am not able to do anything with these swipes. Like, huh. I feel like it should be smart enough to know what I am trying to say, but then like, I don't do that good of a job and, and it's just, it's doing like atrociously. And I have a feeling maybe, you know, this is their way to get Apple users to hop onto the Android system. But, but you wouldn't really know what you're missing. So that's not a very successful marketing strategy. Well, maybe you're part of the marketing strategy. <laughs> I understand. It's essentially like doing cursive for your phone. But actually, the inner workings of this is that it's essentially doing predictive modeling on your phone, right? When you swipe really quickly, you might not be perfectly on top of the right letters, but your phone should be able to consider spatially where your fingers were and in what sequence to infer the most likely word. Just like how some of us have nicer handwriting than others, you can imagine that some of us can swipe with greater precision than others too. Some of us consistently swipe above the keys while others are more on center. A really ideal keyboard can spell the right word regardless of how sloppily we swipe. This requires personalization of the underlying machine learning model. In other words, the phone needs to use our individual data to make this keyboard as useful as possible. But now you might be worried about the fact that, well, you're doing all these swipes and maybe you're writing inappropriate messages to your significant other or... I don't do such things, Derek. 
That's true. Well, neither do I. So <laughs> I don't know why we're using this example. Um, <laughs> so a hypothetical person might have this problem and they might be worried that these texts are floating around the world and getting lodged into Google's cloud servers where their data workers can read your texts. But thankfully, Google has managed to find a way to basically improve your keyboard without pushing your personal data onto the cloud. Remarkably, a lot of smartphones nowadays have immense computational power and are capable of doing machine learning locally. So in fact, your data can be used to locally train the model and provide parameter updates that improve your keyboard. But then you say, wait, suppose there are new words that appear in everyday language. And if my keyboard is only learning from me and not anyone else, eventually it'll just lag behind the global vocabulary. Well, Google's taking care of that too. Rather than just letting our keyboard models improve with our own data, there is a feedback mechanism whereby periodically all phones beam back their learning to the Google servers to be aggregated and then re-disseminated to all phones. This is not the same as sending up our data since it's only sending up the updates to our keyboard model parameters. Right. And as we said, this is just one particular example of federated learning. But I'd like to just spend a little bit of time talking about this at a higher level. So federated learning is essentially a means to train machine learning models in the case where all your data is being generated on people's phones. In other words, your data is scattered across millions of entities, right? It's essentially the problem of distributed or parallel computing where the distributed nature of the data is intrinsic to the problem itself. And in fact, this is a whole field of computer science that we don't have time to dive into. But it's interesting to note that there was a period of time a few years ago where statisticians got really interested in applying these ideas from the field of distributed computation to our own statistical methods. So you would see papers like distributed least squares or distributed lasso or distributed insert whatever statistical method you want. Sounds like it was the neural network of the day once upon a time. Yes, exactly. So parallel computing is the idea that if you have multiple machines, why not divide and conquer? Divide up parts of the total computation in your algorithm and then delegate those parts such that every machine gets to run at the same time. Now, you might expect that if you had 10 machines, your algorithm would run maybe 10 times as fast. But unfortunately, reality is never that simple. There's a communication overhead where the machines have to talk to each other and then aggregate their results together. So you do have some diminishing returns. And in fact, there are certain algorithms that are not naturally parallelizable, usually because there is some sequential component to it. So a classic example of something that is stupidly parallelizable are random forests, right? Because there I'm growing trees independently on different bootstrap samples. So each machine can just work on its own bootstrap sample and build its own tree. And then at the end of it, you'll combine the trees together and you have your random forest. On the other hand, you have the workhorse of machine learning, our lovely stochastic gradient descent. And this technically shouldn't be parallelizable because you're essentially taking one step at a time through your parameter space. And so as a result of this sequential nature, this technically should not be parallelizable. But then Google decided, nope, screw the sequential nature. And it turns out they were right. In practice, you don't really need to take steps in the right order. And your algorithm, or in this case, federated learning, still manages to converge to something reasonable and produce accurate predictions.
So all of these topics that we talked about today, federated learning and differential privacy, um, we're going to have some posts on it online just to elaborate further if you're interested. Um, for additional details, please do check out our show notes. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.